Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm joined by two guests. The first is Anna McGill, who has been on twice before. She's a games writer, and um, you can check out the previous two podcasts. I'll link to them in the show notes. Second guest is Kabe Wilson. Kabe, welcome. Hi, it's really great to be here. How are you? Uh, I'm really, really good. I'm really excited about this. I've been thinking about it all day, and yeah, this is this is this is great. Great. So, Kabe, who are you? <laughs> um, so, I'm I'm a multimedia artist um, from the UK, and um, yeah, basically, to, for the last, uh, well, I mean, sort of four or five years now, uh, and I've recently finished it. I was working on on this project. Um, it's a literary project um, where I what I wanted to do was take a book. And then see if I could actually rearrange all the words within that book to write a uh, write a new book, you know, write write a story, write a novel. Um, and the book I used was Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Um, so then, you know, the the process started, and it and it, it took a long time, and it was it was you know it wasn't just a literary process in the sense of just writing, because obviously there was a real sense in which I had to really get into the text in like a digital way to actually be able to organize the words and and move them around and work out how this was going to work um and uh yeah I mean you know what's great now is I I managed to finish it and and I was sort of sharing it with people and and discussing how it happened and the things I discovered about the way words fit together the way you know the way you can learn from from old literature and and you can keep it fresh and understand how it relates to now so that's yeah that's that's a sort of a short explanation of, of what it was uh what it was I did wow it's in it's incredible um Anna is actually the way I found you so Anna put out this shout out on Twitter does anyone have a podcast that they would like let me crash and I said yeah I always let you crash my podcast <laughs> just ask um so so really what what we're here for is it, it's it's kind of to let you two talk and then just kind of let everybody else listen in on it a little bit. Um, so if I can, I'll jump in right here. Um, I found out about this project because I was just chain linking on, on the internet one day, just going from link to link and, and following, you know, interesting looking things. And I stumbled across that article about your work and I was completely fascinated because of the parallels I saw between what you were doing and what I do with game writing, you know, all mm. these constraints that, that sort of bound your work and you have to work within in order to, to get your message across. And that's what started all of this. I posted it. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this parallel. And then you found my post about that. I'm unashamedly Googling myself to find it. <laughs> we all do it. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> and, and then we started talking about it. And the more we started talking about it, I think the more we realized how much we really did have in common and so that's when I'm like, I would love to have a forum to discuss this a little bit more. And I mostly just wanted to find out more about your work, because as I dug into it, particularly your, your multimedia performance of it, the dreadlock hopes, really struck me as being very similar to a lot of issues that are taking place in gaming these days with its themes about passing and, um, you know, just how you sort of subverted a lot of these sort of literary ideas. There's a lot of that happening in the game world right now. So um, I was just fascinated by it. So uh, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about that and what led to you deciding to make a performance piece out of it instead of just the 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 sort of reworking of Virginia Woolf's text? 
Yeah, I mean, it it was interesting because I think um, working on the text, I there, there was a sense in which I wanted to sort of downplay almost my part in it, you know, looking at it as a as a collaborative work, but really thinking of it as, um, you know, this is a this is a Virginia Woolf work that I'm almost uh, remixing, and it's almost like it's you know the you know in the sense that the DJ doesn't mm-hmm. right. create the original piece. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's it's like that, but then. Um, I think I just I developed such a such an interesting bond with the with the text um, and, you know, and the context around it over time that by the end, I think, yeah, there was this this sense of in which I wanted to do maybe something a little bit more with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I should say is so uh, in 1910, Virginia Woolf uh, famously uh, blacked up and dragged up and pretended to be a an Abyssinian, say, Ethiopian um uh dignitary um who was being who was then with a bunch of her friends who were dressed in the same way um they were received onto a, a royal navy ship uh as you know it, it was a prank and it and it worked they 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 passed um and so i think just because of the a lot of my work looks at uh you know the the, the issue of blacking up and and uh and you know I, I wanted to engage with themes of androgyny which is obviously so key in a room of one's own and also it's quite a big part of my life just just you know because I, I get misgendered all the time um and uh and you know my Ethiopian heritage I thought it would be interesting to try and play on that so it was if it, it became the the dreadnought hoax which is what the ship was called the dreadnought um and it became the dreadlock hoax so I thought okay well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a I'm going to I'm going to write a speech in the same way that I wrote the book where I'm going to take a uh, an essay by Virginia Woolf, which was all about words. I'm going to move these words around to write a a speech about my project, um, and then I'm going to dress up as Virginia Woolf. Uh, I, it was an incredibly, I was just such a privilege that I was invited to uh, give this speech in in uh, in Virginia Woolf's room, <laughs> if you like. It's in 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 her old um, in her old home in in Bloomsbury. Um, and yeah, so I had the audience there. They didn't know what was they were, what was going to happen. Uh, I was I was introduced. I walked in, and then I and then I read this speech out. And it's it's not until the last line of the speech that I actually reveal using those words that the speech is in fact a hoax. Um, and in the same way that the novel, uh, you know, is is hoax like in that sense of rewording. So it was. I mean, it was really it, it was great. It was really it was really really sort of humbling to be able to to be able to do that in that space. But um, but yeah, I mean, I was really because when we were speaking before, what you said to me about the idea of looking at that as a as almost playing playing wolf in almost as if it is a game. I just thought that was a really fascinating idea, and I hadn't I hadn't at all thought of that. Um, well, well, you see so much of that these days. I mean, studies show that women very frequently play as male characters in games, and it's for that same purpose of passing. It's so that they won't be harassed, so that they can participate in the culture without all the baggage that comes along for them with being the woman in that space. So I, I found that really fascinating. And people of color, too. I mean, sometimes they don't have any alternative except to play as a white character in game um and particularly like a white male character that's all that's available sometimes so it's sort of interesting how we have to adopt this disguise almost in order to participate well yeah i mean i think possibly the the one of the originating moments for me in terms of um of thinking of the of the the dreadlock hoax 
specifically was after I'd finished writing the book, I went, um, me and my partner went to visit uh, Virginia Woolf's, it was the, the house she lived and died in, in East Sussex. Um, and uh, it, maybe it's a bit sort of morbid, but I think a lot of people do it. The, when you're at the house, you, you sort of want to see where the walk that she actually took to her suicide oh, is. God. Yeah. Um, so we so we went to the edge of the garden and we sort of hopped over the wall and then went to we sort of walked a bit, realised we couldn't actually get down to the river that way. So then we came back and we hopped back over the wall and then uh, there were two people who were there who were working there who were saying, oh, they sort of saw us coming back in and they said, oh, this is you know sort of this is off off uh, out, you know, out of bounds. You can't come here. And I said, oh no no, it's okay. We're you know we're here. We're part of the tour. And then one and one of them looked at me and just sort of said, oh well that that's surprising. And it was. <laughs> It was oh, sort wow. of, it was a bit awkward because it was just, yeah. yeah, it was this feeling that like is, you know, in the sense of my not passing as a, as a Virginia Woolf fan, you know, do I not look like what they expect a Virginia Woolf fan who's going to visit right. her? Right, right, trespassing, so, yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, that was, that was, there was a, there was a, an element of it for me, for me there. But um, yeah, just going, going back to what you were saying, I just... It, it got me thinking about times when I was younger, when I was much more into games than I am now. I'm, I'm still into games to an extent, but I was, you know, really into it as a teenager. Um, and just thinking how how often there are, you know, it, games, sort of mainstream games, which actually do have female protagonists. And so that you're, you're, you're playing as a female protagonist and how problematic that, that can be. I'm, I was just thinking of, when I was 15, I guess it was sort of like Tomb Raider at its peak. And oh, gosh. Yeah, and it's just sort of like <laughs> you, you think back now. And it's funny because my mum, because I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it soon, I think. But I was, um, I was, I was really big on uh, hex hacking when I was, when I was that age. Um, and I was, you know, I was in like a, an online community for it, for a specific game. And whenever that comes up uh, at home now, my mum always jokes that she remembers that I knew someone who'd, who'd like written written a code uh for removing Lara Croft's top I think it was <laughs> oh, and I just no. think like oh wow <laughs> I just I you know it's it, I find it quite hard to connect to 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 that world now but um but it you know it it just shows up that even when even when there is a female protagonist the 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 you know the problematic element of sort of sexualization in that way and um, with what I really wanted to make a point of with the Judlock hoax was that I wasn't dressing up as Virginia Woolf I was specifically dressing up as a you know a middle-aged Virginia Woolf so I I wanted I wanted it to sort of be the the element of a young black man is actually trying to pass as an old white woman um so it's in terms of the idea of the protagonist it's sort of like when when it is possible for for uh you know to, to play as a female protagonist what kind of female protagonist that is that you know what? What sort of things are are seen as as seen as acceptable in in mainstream gameplay, if you like? Absolutely, yeah. I just read an article recently asking where all the mothers are in video games because mm-hmm. we've seen this this recent influx of like father figures in games like The Last of Us, um, and they mentioned a few others. I'm not thinking of them right now, but that's not an uncommon trope where you see a father sacrificing everything to save his child. Um, I think they were also mentioning The Walking Dead with Clementine and stuff, and just sort of these paternal figures. But there are no mothers. I mean, who are actively mothers in the game, um, right. and it's something that becomes, I, I think, invisible. Like, we just stop seeing it. Like, you stop missing it almost because you just become so used to 
it not being there. And, and so sometimes someone has to dress up in disguise to make you realize what's really going on there. And that's what I loved about the, the dreadlock coat is that it made me realize how much we do to pass, like what I do to pass characters through in my own work, I guess is the, the way, how, how I have to dress them up to get my ideas in. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. So I was intrigued by that. And I know that sounds really cryptic right now because I haven't given you any examples of that. But like, for example, in, in Murdered, there were a lot of things I wanted to do with one of the characters, but those characters were defined by what the creative director wanted. So he had set down these prescriptions for an age and a gender and certain personality traits and certain narrative beats that we had to hit. And I had to figure out how within all of these confines, and believe me, that was a lot to to bound the character, I had to figure out how I could get her to be the person I wanted her to be within that framework. So, you know, and I have to give a lot of credit to the lead writer for that one too. Doug Van Horn, shout out. So I was just going to ask, so in terms of, in terms of um, the, the limited space you actually have, are, are you talking uh, almost in terms of dialogue there? Is it sort of you have these short spaces or... I, it, dialogue or sort of the, I mean, you have, you're, you're presented with a scene and in that scene, something has to happen, but you can determine how it happens, I guess, or sort of the tone of the scene to a certain extent, um, the actual words that characters say, the actions that they perform. You can you can change a lot and still hit the same narrative beat with that. Like if the point of the scene is that two characters form an alliance um, and they enter the scene as enemies and they depart the scene allies, there's still a lot of room within those parameters for you to get their personalities across. So instead of being confrontational, they could be you know sort of sizing each other up and it could be much more bantering than confrontation. So that's those are the kind of that's the wiggle room you have to find in in games sometimes, and it's really that small of a space. Yeah, I think I, I like the idea that there's a there's an element of um, sort of being being a director, as in you you have the you have the visual aspect to work with, so that there can be you know um, sort of physical interaction and and yeah, like body language that you know in, in right. terms of it, just working in text, you you don't have that in the same way, and the sort of the limitation within text. <clears throat> generally not just you know in, when you've put yourself in a position where you have certain words that you have to use but just generally in text trying to convey that um so that's yeah and that's actually because I, I suppose in a way that's something I hadn't really necessarily thought of too much in games just because <laughs> almost from from the from the gaming side of things I guess I, I'm almost tend to think too much in terms of like you know oh I'm the gamer so I'm in control of what the characters do <laughs> which is obviously ridiculous because everything everything that's been put in there has been put in there by someone um mm-hmm. uh, so yeah that that's no that's really yeah that's that's fascinating actually well I mean that's sort of the one of the the theories of storytelling in games right like you basically have these two schools you know and one of one of which is you know it's a very linear progression and it's all laid out and players have to follow this sort of set path of experiences and it's almost like an an interactive movie i mean that's sort of one path you can follow and the other is emergent gameplay and emergent storytelling and have you played journey or do you know anything about i know i, I know of journey actually I, i'd heard of it sort of vaguely before but when i listened to one of your earlier podcasts 
um, yeah, the way, the way you were talking about it, I thought, right, that rings a bell. And I looked at it up and it's like, yeah, this is, I mean, I was actually really frustrated when I realized that it was only, it was, it's only one con- console, right? It's, it's, is it PS3? PlayStation right. 3. Okay, yeah, and yeah. soon for PS4, yeah. Right, okay. Um, so it was like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to get to play this. But yeah, it looks just a re- pretty incredible stuff, yeah. But it's it's that. I mean, you've set the boundaries on what players can do, but within those boundaries, players are free to create their own experiences. And I think that's exactly it. It's exactly that sort of play within the these very narrow constraints. Because, I mean, I'm just thinking how often games come out that are... I've played quite a few games which are based on sort of directly based on films, um, so that almost to the extent that you're just as a, as a, as the gamer you're filling in the gaps bet- between scenes that you are you're you're going to see these scenes um, graphically that you've seen on on the screen right and then and then you're you're just you you know you know it's almost that you're playing that out I mean have you have you experience of working on games like that is it is that is that a frustration that you're you're you have much less space to work with because it's 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 the plot is pre sort of it's, it's set already um I, that's been my experience on almost every game i've worked on um simply because i, I i'm not high up enough in the food chain in most cases to to determine the plot of a game you know and if we were looking again at, at murdered for example which is a situation where the creative director had a great deal of control i mean like really it was his project and it was his game and we were just there to help him realize it. I mean, that was everything we did had to be in service to his vision. Um, so it wasn't a matter of what can I do creatively on this? It's does what I'm doing match up with what he's looking for? It was a very different way of thinking about it. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? I'm sorry. Well, here I have a question, actually, because um, you recently pitched some game ideas to one or more studios and one or more of those game ideas was accepted and you're going to actually be making at least one of these games, right? Right. right. So how do you envision that process being different for you now as kind of, I don't know, being the creative director versus, you know, being just kind of that lower person in the food chain? Good question. Uh, I don't really know how it's going to come together yet. I mean, this is a very new experience very new. for me. Yeah. yeah um, and I think I'm still working out a lot of things with the studio about what role I'm going to play and how we're going to, you know, who we're going to get on the team. It's like, so what can I delegate and what will I be doing myself? But yeah, for the first time ever, it will be my vision. Uh, it will be my story and my characters. And it's, it's weird. It's a really strange feeling. I mean, I got into games because I like collaboration. So, um, I don't know. I, it will probably be a very democratic process because you hire people that you respect, right? You hire people who know about, you know, cinematics. That's not my strongest point. So I want to talk to someone who has a really visual way of storytelling and get their input on it because, you know, that may not be the thing that I'm best at in the world. So, you know, in that case, you lean on their expertise and they give you an idea and then you give them an idea and you go back and forth. And I think that's how the best games are made, you know, as long as you're all still pointing in the right direction. Were there, were there points where you've worked on games before where you felt, you know, my input here, if I was in a position to give it, would be so beneficial for the game, but you felt frustrated that you couldn't give it. And so almost now you're going to learn from their mistake and you're going to you're going to know exactly almost when to when to uh, I don't know I, I sort of when to when to ask for 
input mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i've had the i've i've worked at both ends of the spectrum like working on on guild wars 2 it was much more a collaborative process i mean it ended up being like 300 people who worked on that game over the course of, I mean, probably even more than that, uh, 300 when we hit the finish line, but hundreds of people over the course of five years to develop a game of that size. And while we did have a, a creative director and we had two world builders, and those were the people who, you know, set the direction and kept us on it, you know, everyone obviously contributed. And it was a project where people were were welcome to contribute. Like any good idea that we thought would help the game was welcomed and, you know, thought about and vetted and approved. And, you know, that that was welcome there. And that's a very different process from what it was on Murdered, which, again, was very much the creative director's baby. And he wanted things the way he wanted them because he had a, a very powerful vision for it. Um, but I would hope, having learned from both his experiences, that I would probably, you know, be a little bit more on the Guild Wars 2 side, um, just because it was a lot of fun to work on. Um, and I would hope that the people who are working for me would be able to feel creatively satisfied too. Yeah. I'm just thinking of what you were saying about, it, you know, it being a, it being a, a weird feeling to, to approach it. Because I think in a way, it sounds, what I did with, with um, you know, rewri- rewriting this text was, it sounds like oh you know it's just like a crazy idea to come up with but in actual fact I do look back and see a certain uh I don't in like insecurity I don't know if that's the right word but sort of a, a lack of confidence in in your own belief that you can just just write like oh you almost like oh you know your words are <laughs> your words are so important that you can just go out and put them down and then people should listen um I you know I didn't feel like that so I think so what what attracted me to the concept was the idea that collaboration and restriction offers you offers you a space to I don't know like maybe maneuver and sort of try and present something something that you want to say in dialogue with someone else because then it it doesn't have that I I just think maybe there's a certain arrogance in in just saying this is this is what I think I have all the words at my disposal and I'm just going to say it and you're going to and you're going to listen you're going to think what I say is right because I didn't you know that's that that's not not something that I would I would ever be able to to to, to think like I, I suppose. It's interesting that you say that that's arrogant. I mean, um... I'm not necessarily in in a bad way because you know, like being being an an auteur like that, it it can be you know, it can be really it can lead to some really amazing amazing work. But I think I don't know. Maybe I mean maybe the fact that the game games are such a such an important thing now suggests that collaborative art is actually going to going to be the 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 primary form of art from now on I don't know I mean well I mean I think we have to sort of redefine what we mean by collaborative I mean you consider the work that you did collaborative because you were working with Virginia Woolf's text and you know from what I understand the research you did you were going back and sort of you know connecting with with other authors and historical figures um to find these connections that you hadn't realized were there. So you were really connecting with all of these figures from the past. I mean, even, even a novel where the author sits down and it's purely their thoughts down on the page. It's still, they still have an editor. They still have a publisher who has to vet it. There's, there's still a lot of feedback that they get. So, you know, the more important they become, I think the more control they have over how that work looks, but you know, there's a lot of things like I was reading this article about um, I read a lot of articles <laughs> about 
how how they um, market men's publications versus women's publications, and particularly like novels. You know, that you have a, a women's typical cover versus a, a male author's cover. And I was just looking at the comparison. I'm like, wow. Uh, there really is a difference, you know, how they market these ideas. And, you know, even though they were very similar thematically, they were marketed in very different ways. And this this female author was talking about how she had no control. She had no say in the kind of cover that they put on her work. And she felt it misrepresented what she was trying to get across in the book. And I'm like, that's an interesting thing. You would think that that, the, at least the way the book is being presented, would be something a novelist would have control over, but apparently not. No, so, they don't. Yeah. Yeah, very, very. It's it's kind of that same thing where you're talking about the editorial process. The more famous and the more money that an author draws in, they have more say, presumably, on their editorial process. It's the same with the book cover. Most authors have no control whatsoever on their book cover, and they just kind of have to cross their fingers and hope that they'll like it. And even titles sometimes. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it that... Uh, you know, a writer takes it and it's, the book's going to be published, but then the publishers decide, no, this isn't going to be the title, and they just come up with something else. And it's just like, yeah, it just it just seems so it just seems so strange because, like, you know, the title you almost think the title is just such a a, a primary aspect of of the work right? that you're producing. But yeah, it's basically summing up the work in yeah. Yeah. one <laughs> quick little soundbite there. I so, but I mean, in that sense, it is collaboration, right? I mean, it's. It's nothing is entirely your own. And you made the the wonderful point in your own work, Kabe, that language itself, this technology that we use to express ourselves, is really recycled. You know, that what you were doing with Wolf's text is what we do with language. Like, I'm not inventing these words that I'm using right now. Someone else invented these words. I'm just rearranging them into different patterns to communicate with you. Which is what Wolf says as well. And that's the amazing exactly. thing about everyone's own, right? Yeah. Yes, I mean... I, everything is collaboration. Like that's what kind of blew my mind when I started thinking about it. Like it, it, it's all collaboration. Certainly, when I'm talking to someone who's well read, I hear snippets and sort of unconscious quotes from, from authors that they've read and from famous works that just slips into our our speech all the time. And you know, annoying catchphrases. God help <laughs> us. I mean, that's that's the same kind of thing. It, it's this borrowed language that we have to somehow shape in a way that pleases us and communicates our ideas best to people you know and we're constrained by the language that we grew up speaking i mean we can expand that if we want but i mean think think of just the, the bounds on communicating with another person it's mind-boggling i was just going to say in terms of what you were just saying about um when, when you know when people are talking and you can and you can hear you can effectively you can hear the collaboration that's that's going on within their language and i, I just Sometimes I feel like maybe, maybe, maybe what I wanted was to uh, really pointedly embrace the idea of collaboration. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's where it's moving. We have to start embracing collaborative work in the way of rather than leaning on the idea of like a single a single creator. Just you know, just even in, and when it links back to the arrogant thing, just even the way sometimes I notice if. I mean, I don't want to completely genderize it, but if there's a if there's a guy who's talking like really, really confidently, and you hear you hear something that you know you've heard before that he's effectively quoting but passing off as if he's saying it, versus when I've heard when I've heard women do do the same thing, it's always you know, oh, I I I remember reading or like or someone I was discussing with someone. It's 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 more 
it's you know it's almost more open to the idea of not having to not having to say you know I did this myself this is this is something I came up with right you know and it's because that usually backfires on women um I'm I'm sure you know that um yeah interesting I I hadn't quite thought of it that way I mean I guess that's where that term mansplaining comes into it you know where men just sometimes assume that they know more about the subject uh that a woman might be an expert in uh, simply because that's been their experience, you know, that, that they know more. Cause is it right where the mansplaining came because, because it was, um, I've forgotten the name of the writer, but, uh, a woman had written a book and yes. she was talking. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the guy's like, Oh shoot, you should read this book. <laughs> and she's like, I wrote that book actually. And he still wouldn't believe her. That was the best part. Like he argued with her about it. Oh, yeah, I, I'm uncomfortable with the term. I, I try not to use it. I don't think it, it helps things. It just creates hostility. Um, and I'm really much more about trying to sort of bridge those gaps and, and get us to, to understand one another and move forward. But I certainly understand the frustration that underlies uh, the term when people are using it. Um, I've had people who, who will argue with me on Twitter about about the games industry, like what it's like for women in the games industry. And it's a guy who's a store clerk and he's, he's trying to tell me what my experience as a woman in the games industry is. And he's, he's convinced that he's right. I mean, that's, and that's like the hard part is he'll, he'll argue with me about it and he'll just, they won't take the time to click on my bio and to see who yeah. I am. They just see that I'm a woman and assume I don't know. So, uh, there are those moments. Well, and too, so I talked with Virginia Roberts. Um, she was on the podcast before last, you know, and, and I know you've worked with her and she's been in the games industry. Her husband is in the industry. And um, and she was talking about how men in the games industry have argued with her about how women are treated or how it is for women in the industry, which I think is also fascinating. If they don't... If they don't see it, it's hard. It's hard to believe in something that you don't see. And these are people who who think of themselves as very logical and and factual, and they base their lives on that. And so for them, if they don't see empirical proof that it's happening, it it, it doesn't exist. Even though they may not have the necessary experience, or in some cases education, to recognize what's happening, even when it's happening right in front of them. Um, so yeah, I I. I know exactly what Virginia's talking about. Yeah, well, and nobody's the bad guy in their own story, right? You know, you're never the one who's who's doing something wrong. Well, I mean, I know that's cliche, but you're very rarely the person who's in the wrong. You're very rarely the person who's actually doing harm to somebody else in your own story. So, so I was just going to say, and defensiveness is always such an energizing enforce in any... No, you know, if people feel like they're under attack, that's when they really go for it. That's when they really come at you and just that's when it gets horrible, right? Well, I mean, I, I would kind of question what you just said, because I think some people revel in that role. It's like trolls, for example, they are actively horrible and they, that's what they want to be. You know, they want to believe that they are, they are villains and they're ruining people's lives. It gives them a sense of power that they may not have, or I don't know, maybe they just enjoy it. It's, I, I don't understand that mindset. Um, but I've been really fascinated by that because, again, it trolls masquerading as as other people. Like, I've seen a lot of that recently. Um, I've seen with sock puppet accounts for Gamergate. 
Um, there's a long history of uh, men's rights activists disguising themselves as women and going onto forums to say almost always, well, as a woman, I don't believe that this is true. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's this, I, again, these disguises that we wear and are able to wear online um, to pass as something else, to pass ourselves off as something else in order to gain legitimacy in that world. Yeah. Well, and I guess there's a qualifier there. People acting in good faith are not necessarily the villains in their own stories, I think is right. more on point. Yeah, but I, I do think that there are people out there who really enjoy thinking of themselves that way. I, think I agree. Yeah. Because at least it's a kind of power and maybe they're powerless and, and you know, uh, what is the, the Gwendolyn Brooks poem? Boy Breaking Glass. If I cannot create, then I will create a hole. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I can't about? answer that. I don't. I okay. I recognize it, yeah. Okay, yeah. It just He destroys... He destroys because he cannot create. I mean, that's that's how the poem starts. Yeah, so I I think it's that same sort of motivation there. Like if if you can't create something good, if all your attempts to do that have been thwarted, or you feel you have no power to act on them, and you want to leave some kind of mark on the world, then sometimes you end up doing these negative things. Um, I could pontificate about that, you know, and how it relates to a certain recent movement in the games industry, but I think. I am tired of talking. Yeah, about no. we've got we've got better things to talk about today. <laughs> oh man, we sure do. Um, so can we let me let's ask some of these questions. I I feel like I barely even touched on some of them. I think so. I think I understand why you set such rigid constraints for yourself with this work. I mean, I understand the collaborative aspects of it, and I I understand that you wanted to. Because if you didn't put these constraints on it, that would be just a huge, how would you delimit that if you hadn't said, okay, I'm just going to rework this text? So I, I think I, I understand where you were coming from with that. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about how that led to sort of the epiphanies that you had and the connections that you made? Because for me, that was fascinating. That was like the one of the most interesting parts. It was, I mean, it was also like sort of the most exciting thing about about the whole project is when you know it, you you have the you have the words in front of you and you know some of them are words some of them are names some of them are words that you don't even understand and you really just have to sort of go into researching and finding out what these things mean and what they could mean and what they meant now versus what they meant then um so there were points in which it's 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 like I'll I'll find a word and I'll I'll think okay this this is a name who can this name be referring to and who who did it refer to then and who who would it make sense to refer to now almost um and yeah the, I mean just the number of times when something came up and just offered offered a link I guess in a, in a way it was just like you say about epiphanies and it's sort of like I don't necessarily know where where the project's going or where the text is going or where the story is going then suddenly something comes together and it's like wow I, I I had no idea that 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 she would she would have even included this word and then have to go back and look why did you know why did she say this and that and and how fascinating that something that you could you can almost perceive as so modern could be written in like nineteen twenty eight um and and yeah and so it becomes it becomes like a driving a, a, like a driving force to 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 work from um and I think. Yeah, I think, like I said, that was just it was just really the most exciting part of it because they were just so 
regular in a way and and they almost you know I, uh, I don't know what it would be called but you know the the, the criticism sometimes leveled at uh at stories where just just at the moment when you think all's lost uh something pops up and and, and saves you right and I, I think that there is there was that real sense in which you know it's, it's difficult to not to start believing there's like a destined element to it if at that exact right moment I needed I needed some way to say this and then then the word just jumps out at you oh that's amazing um so that was I mean that was that was just really 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 cool uh, I'm trying to think actually I, I should say some examples um so that well actually this so this would relate to something I was going to ask you just about how in terms of, of word usage if you're working on a game that's actually got like a yeah like a a, a, a rating mm-hmm. it means are there in terms of words specifically words are there certain words that you're not going to be allowed to say or words that you're only going to be allowed to say a specific number of times mm-hmm. is that is that actually how it works i've never been sure um, well, there's two different rating systems, you know, American and European, and uh, they have very different standards for it. Um, there's a there's a long list of of like rating categories, basically. Um, for games, what you're really trying to do is just avoid the the dreaded adults only um, rating, because um, that that's like death for the game. Like almost no one's going to buy that, or few people are. Mature is fine, you know. Teen is great. Uh, all those are fine, but it's not so much a a number of words, or at least not in my experience. It's just sort of an, an overall like level of, of bad things happening, like. <laughs> Violence, for example, will get you a worse rating in Europe, whereas sexual things will get you a worse rating in America. That's just the difference. Um, and I, once you've crossed that barrier, like once you've decided that you're going to use the the bad words, it's not so much a matter that you're there's 15 examples of you know swear words in there. It's it's that that has become a characteristic of your game. It's not one instance of swearing. It's there's swearing. Um, and so I. I think it's more like once you've crossed that barrier, you're free to use it as many times as you want, but you have to decide that that's what you're going to do. Uh, so like in, in Murdered, the very first time I was trying to write Ronin, and uh, Ronin O'Connor was a creation of Yosuke Shiokawa, the creative director, and Doug Van Horn, the, the lead writer, and they had established his character and his voice and everything about him long before I came on the scene. So the first time I was trying to write is Ronan, he walks into this scene in the rectory in the game, and there's been a massacre, and there's just dead bodies and blood everywhere, uh, and it's a horrific sight. And he says, holy shit, and we had this hilarious reading of that uh, subbed in for a long time before we had good voice acting for it, so that's always what I hear in my head whenever I think about that scene, holy shit. Um, but, I mean, that was, for me, the natural thing that he would say. And I had to stop for a moment and think, okay, is this really what Ronan would say? Or is that what I would say when I walk into this room? And so I had to go and talk to the lead writer and determine, is is this true to character? Is this appropriate for this moment? Is this a strong enough scene for him to have that reaction? So those are sort of or- organic things, I think, more than the uh, rating determination um, but we had decided that he was that there would be swearing in the game, so that hurdle was 
overcome. I mean, that was swearing was the least of our problems <laughs> in, in a game like Murdered with the absolutely horrific deaths in there. I mean, that was swearing was the the least of our issues, and he smokes through the whole thing. So, um, yeah, we're we were lucky to get a, a Peggy eighteen rating um, in Europe. Really, we were. It's funny actually because um, one of the because in terms of the plot of of the novel, um, the, the 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 protagonist Olivia. She, she so she's she's studying at Cambridge but she really hates it um because she feels she feels that it's like a really sexist environment she feels like it's really you know basically she feels like it's a racist sexist homophobic not so much homophobic but she's she's dealing with all these issues um and ultimately she decides that she's going to set fire to the libraries right you're introduced to that at the beginning but then you then you see her coming to that realization coming to that epiphany point and um when she first walks into the into the main university library I wanted it, I wanted this moment to be her like uh, amazed at, at how sort of you know impressive this library was. So in her internal monologue, she thinks, "Holy smoke!" Which is sort yeah. of like a, you know to to, yeah. to uh, preclude the fact that eventually she's going to be setting it on fire, right? Um, That's lovely. But then it was sort of uh, yeah, as I put that, I thought, "Yeah, okay, that 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 works." But would would anyone think holy smoke you know she's not she's not she's not batman almost um, <laughs> right right so so in, in a way there was the, the one restriction i was working with in terms of uh in terms of word usage like that was there's the fact that these are old words and i'm trying to give them a new context sometimes that doesn't work as well as as you want it to um i remember one's own virginia wolf the way she writes she says the word perhaps so often that perhaps i don't think I, I just it, it, that was a hard one to fit in because the, I just felt that perhaps isn't something you you would necessarily uh, almost like a modern mind wouldn't wouldn't use perhaps quite as regularly as that. Um, but then linking it to the you know what I'd call the significant words, not necessarily not necessarily swearing words, but um, but you know they can be. Uh, one example is. In in a room one's own, there's there's an allusion to um, a faggot burning on top of Hampstead Heath. A faggot, meaning the old, well, one of the old usages, faggot, like, like a stack of a stack of sticks, is it? Um, but then it's like, okay, well now this word is, you know, it's just imbued with all this like significant homophobic meaning. That there's going to be there's going to be when I come to use this word, I'm going to be able to use it in a way that's actually incredibly powerful compared to how it was originally used. Um, and in terms of epiphany, what was amazing there was that uh, already at this point, I, I'd 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 had one of these moments when I discovered that uh, she so Olivia's living in Cambridge. She reads about the the Black Panther H. Rat Brown, who incited a uh, basically he incited a riot which led to Cambridge, Maryland being burnt down. So the two Cambridge links, I was like, okay, well that's what's going to give her the idea to do this. And um, and I was like, okay, well then she's going to go and have to discover some of his work. So she goes and finds one of his, uh, she finds his autobiography, and she starts reading it. And at this point in the book, she's already been, she she's had this racist, sexist abuse aimed at her when someone insinuates that she's the um, she's the the illegitimate, well not it's illegitimate, but she's the child of Othello and Desdemona. Oh, okay. Um, so, so there, so that there's, there's this sense of the, like the implicit racism of, of Othello as a play that's been included 
in H. Rat Brown's autobiography, he says, um, I'm trying to get the phrase right, he says, when I read, it's something like, when I read Othello at school, I could tell Shakespeare was a racist. Upon reading his poetry, I gathered he was a faggot. And it's like, okay, well, I've got, <laughs> I've got the word Othello, I've got the word faggot, unbelievably. And, and so it just, it all tied together. And I thought, you know, wow, how, how amazing that, that this word that was used you know, in a, in a, just a much more descriptive way, then has given me the possibility to, to 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 focus on something in a way that was just so perfect for the you know for the for the text and it played that role. Oh, that is incredible. The Cambridge Cambridge thing right there. I mean, that's uh, right off the bat. That's incredible. Um, but I, I I've had moments like that though. I, I think it, collaborating for games too, where I'm sort of independently working on something in in my department we all have this idea for the story and then we go and talk to the game designers or the level designers or art or just another department and we find out that they have independently been working on something that's going to exactly meet the needs that we have just come up with and they're like yeah we we invented this this new idea for you know displaying information in the ui or something you're like oh my god that's perfect because we need to to hit this narrative point and that will like ease people into it rather than hitting them over the head and it's just those happy little moments that that i mean it's live collaboration instead of you sort of making those connections yourself it's like leaving your office and walking down the hall and, and getting input from someone else. But I, I think it's the same sort of thing that those happy connections do appear on their own. If you're open to them. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just reminded me if I can find it, there's a, there's this, yeah, there's this line in room one's own where she said, um, she's talking about art and she said that they're not single and solitary births they are the outcome of many years of thinking in common of think of thinking by the body of the people so that the experience of the mass is behind a single voice so uh, it just you know it sets up so perfectly for this idea of, of dialogue and and especially thinking in common as if you know everyone's almost working on the same I don't know working on the same like trajectory and then you know you can you can you can find you can find each other there and and you start to discover links that you just you didn't think were there, which is great if you're, if you're, if like you said earlier, you're, you're thinking not just collaboratively uh, in terms of collaboration, but also in a, in a social sense, in terms of collaboration, like, you know, bringing people together rather than having all this negativity that you can find the links between people that you didn't expect that, that, that binds people, but it binds people in a way that is, is, um, that embraces diversity without, you know, can unify whilst whilst embracing diversity, which I think is 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 an important way of looking at it. I mean, absolutely, and you know, again, studies show that like the more diverse a team, you know, the more people are bringing to it, and actually, the better solutions that they come up with, because you're getting all these different types of input thrown together, and you can, you know, you can not only feed off of everyone's different ideas about it, but you know, sometimes it's a just a completely different way of looking at the problem than you would have come up with on your own. And instead of trying to work through something, sometimes you can find a great way to go around it, which for me is always better. <laughs> but um, So, so yeah, that's why diversity is really important. And I, one of the things I, I'm constantly amazed by is this resistance to, you know, SJWs in the games industry. Um, it's, it's baffling to me because I, all it is is just fresh ideas and fresh stories that are, are being told 
in addition to the ones that are that are already there and i there's so much fear that the stories that are there now are going to go away and i just i wish there was a way to educate people that that wasn't the case i mean i sent you guys the the true impact of sjw's on game development i I just want to say for the record i hope you link to this aline i will but all all of the the things on that list there are things that i i you know, to a certain extent have heard at, at game companies. I know for a fact that these are things that have been put into to get reasons why things have been put into games. You know, marketing plays a huge role. I've been, you know, on several occasions told I can't do something that I want to do because it's not going to go over well with the, the target audience. So I, those are huge. Those are the unseen collaborators, right? It's the, the book cover for the author. That's what you have to worry about. And I just think that diversity, like getting more diverse people, bringing different perspectives to it, you know, it's just a small drop in the bucket of this giant collaborative process, which the consumers are part of too, right? Which I I think they they are suddenly becoming aware of. (laughs) Sorry, I don't want to talk about them. Well, but I think that's part of what, what we're seeing with like the schism right now is I think that people are so afraid, like the quote unquote hardcore gamers are so afraid that, you know, we're going to get the, the moms in their, you know, 30s and 40s who play Candy Crush and that they're going to ruin gaming. And, and, and there are a couple of things wrong with that. First of all, no. And, <laughs> you know, like secondly, succinct. Right. Yeah. But these are, these are the games that are open and accessible to, these people right now to to the non-hardcore gamers we need um and i talked with my friend ken gagney about this a little bit last week you know we need those middle ground uh games that are somewhere between call of duty and candy crush that you know moms will be interested in playing that tell different stories and you know it's you know it's it's not going to hurt anything it's just not I completely agree. I mean, I, I, as you know, I mean, I, I've spent the the past few years sort of research, researching these hidden markets out there. Like I discovered all these um, fandoms that were taking an existing show. And I mean, I'm sure you're both familiar with this. Like I looked specifically at the, the Supernatural fandom. I was fascinated by them because they've kept that show online for 10 years. It doesn't have the highest ratings. It's, you know, it's not a big blockbuster show, but it's at 10 seasons and going strong. And that's because this really small fan base has formed this symbiotic relationship with the show itself and with the writers and and the producers, and they have kept it going. And I've been fascinated by how productive they are as a fan base. Um, The amount of fan fiction they write and video manips and, and all this other stuff that they do in order to, tell the stories that they want to tell with the raw materials of, of the show, which I thought, you know, they're, they're collaborating. I mean, and the longer you, you go watching Supernatural, the more the symbiosis becomes obvious because the show starts referencing the fans and starts referencing things that the fans have done, and, you know, and they mention fan fiction in the show. And it starts like toward the end, there were some jokes that if you weren't following the fandom, you would not understand and I thought, wow, I mean, how often does that happen? It's interesting that you you 
you have looked into Supernatural as like part of these kind of cultural collaborations, I guess, because I've only seen a small handful of episodes. I've tried to watch it. I just I can't get into it. I've been told, you know, you need to get to season two or three and then you'll really, you know, you'll really be in and I just can't get that far. But I know a lot about Supernatural. Like it's everywhere. I was going to say, it's actually funny because that I had that exact conversation about three hours ago because I've been watching it at the moment. <laughs> and the person who recommended it to me because I was saying, yeah, I like it, but, you know, it's maybe it's not serialized enough. It's not quite addictive enough. It's like, no, 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 get to get to like, the third episode of series three. And that's it. That's the point at which I'm like, OK. <laughs> Well, I, it's in, we all three have had the same experience. I mean, I kept seeing all these, you know, gifts and memes and stuff go by on Tumblr. And I'm like, what is this uh-huh. show? Yep, exactly. Like, it looked insane from the things I saw going by. I'm like, no show. I mean, they pride themselves on, we have a gift for everything, right? And they do. It's really remarkable. Um, so I, I just wanted to see what it was all about. And people said the same thing to me, like, no, 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 you have to stick with it. But you guys know why that is, right? You know no, why? No. Because it was originally pitched and, and created to be a show for, like, that very sought-after young male demographic. So it's got, you know, muscle cars and rock and roll and, you know, and a womanizer and these kind of, like, unlikable characters. You know, and it's a, a guy's story. And it took them, like, at least a season to figure out that the people who were actually watching their show were women. <laughs> um, huh. And, like, what, you can see when they kind of caught on. I mean, there's a few... There's some really interesting sort of female gazy things in the beginning, but it gets really intense and fan servicey like the longer it goes on. Um, so I, it's just fascinating to me like they suddenly realized what they had and it wasn't who they were dangling the bait for. So wow, yeah, and it opened them up to collaboration, which I think is cool. They paid attention. Yeah, and that's amazing. And I've been thinking a lot um, lately, and especially through this conversation. Well, so my my bachelor's degree is in multimedia communication. So, you know, all through college, obtaining my degree, you know, we're hit with um, Peter Drucker talking about information overload. And, you know, there's there's so much going on in the world right now. But we're also in this, like, very unique point in history where we can collaborate with anybody, almost literally anybody in the world. And it's not, and it doesn't have to be a one-on-one collaboration. It can be many people, and it can be people coming in and dropping out and adding their voice where where they want it to be heard. And it's almost... Um, in some cases, like you think of, I don't know, like group blogs and that kind of thing, it, it's almost like an organic, like living, breathing creature, you know, with with things, you know, it grows and it shrinks and it, it changes and morphs and evolves over time. And I just think that's fascinating. Yeah, uh, it's just in terms of gaming, it's, it's, it's that's, that just so completely... Um... It relates I was just like saying when I was when I was 15 and I was addicted to to doing that the hex coding for uh it was the it was the WWF Smackdown 2 game at that point I love that, <laughs> I love that you did that amazing um but it's yeah it is I mean you know looking back now I, I can just actually see it as just this like it was yeah it was just this huge act of fan fiction really it's it's about taking something that you're so you know a, a tv show um, you know whether you're going to call it a sport or entertainment, or whatever. It's a TV show that you're you're addicted to, and then you want to you want to engage with the game. You want to find out how to how to 
you know, collaborate not only with the with the original creators of the game, but then this community who's also as into it as you are and finding new ways, you know, new ways to adapt to the game. And also, you know, in terms of our conversation, working very much within the constraints of what that game of what that game is, you know, almost in, in like a coding level, like you can't really you can't add things that don't exist in some sense. So those those are the restrictions there. Um so yeah, I mean, I, you know, it like I guess the question is like, is it is it is it digital? Is it you know is is the is the digital is the digital revolution what allows this 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 massive massive move towards collaboration? Like you say, with anyone anywhere. Oh, is that an actual question or is it rhetorical? I, I I'm sitting here just looking into space, thinking about it. I guess that's sort of one of the question without the question mark at the end. <laughs> yeah, um, I I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, I certainly it's easier to collaborate because of that. I mean, do we think more collaboratively now? I mean, I guess is what you're really asking, and maybe we do. I, I mean, maybe that's that's what we're moving toward. Simply because we're used to giving space to other people's ideas simply because we have to online, you know. I mean, you can isolate yourself inside your house, but then, you know, you turn on your computer and you're assailed by all these other voices. We've become at least more social in that sense um, and less social. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this this thought. I don't have an answer to this question because I feel like collaboration's always been there. Just how we're using it is different now. I don't know. I think the scale has not changed, but is easier to change. So, I mean, you think about, I don't know, 200 years ago and people living in townships and villages and, you know, working for the good of the community or good of the majority of the community, Um, you know, not necessarily creative collaboration, but collaboration to survive. Um, So, yeah, I, I think... I think as a survival mechanism, I think we're wired to collaborate. It's just how has that changed now into like what point? I, I mean, scale, obviously. Yeah. We, you know, and I think collaboration, I mean, obviously you look at like a, a, a dance, right? In certain cultures, you know, everyone in the, in the village or the, the cultural group would participate in that and to a certain extent or a feast day. Everyone would bring their own contributions to that celebration. So that's a collaboration that involves an entire community. But, you know, you also get things now, you know, was it Lori Anderson who had that online artwork where she would basically start it and anyone could go in and adjust it? So there, she was basically crowdsourcing the the artwork. And so what the work was was constantly shifting as different people contributed their little bits to it. And as you know, as far as I know, it's still ongoing. So it's it it's an endless collaboration, really. And when do you put a limit on that and say, okay, now it's done, and now it's a work of art, or is the work of art the process itself that never ends? So I mean, those are those are things that are possible now. I think that that weren't possible before, just because it can reach so many different people. It's, it's reminding me of a because I did some work on um, uh, Rosalind Franklin last year, the um, who uh, of course discovered DNA and was then overlooked for it. 
Um, and there's there's a really a really great quote from her where she says, um, it, it, I think it was actually when she was asked about how she felt about being overlooked at that stage, and she said, "We're standing on each other's shoulders," which I just think is just is is just so it's it's just incredible because it's. It, 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 it there's a real sense of like the, the positive uh democratic sense of, of a collaborative evolution i guess in in that it's that you know we are moving forward and if you relate it to art then you can really you can really see just how engaging it can be to to refer back to like you said like you know when you're talking about like supernatural fan fiction and stuff and the way and the way it affects the show and actually watching that show i like i like the fact because uh, I, I guess coming to it, I've just in my head, it's like okay, I'm going to compare this to Buffy like the whole way through, <laughs> right? And right. then just to see how it was. So it's nice. It's nice when I see there was actually references to Buffy, and like you know that I don't know if there's any character crossovers at a later stage. Um, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me the way it's moving, but um, but just it's it's there's there's something so exciting when you do when you do see a, an allusion to something in something else that you like, right? And I think that's that's one of the one of the approaches I had towards towards the novel was that I wanted to, in terms of collaboration, quote as often as I could. Because if I'm quoting someone else's words using Wolf's words, not only is it a way of you know not relying on the idea that oh you know these are my words, it's 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 sort of building a patchwork, uh, a bit you know building a patchwork of 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 text of language, um, I, layering it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, that's what I was struck by about your work. It's just how how many levels to it there were. And I don't mean that in a really pretentious sense of, oh, there's so many levels to your work. <laughs> I mean, I, I really mean it in the sense of it's it's structured in a way that, you know, it's it's performance on top of this collaboration. And within that collaboration, there's more collaboration. And there's just, it's all very intertwined and, and intricate for something, you know, I, I think that can come across as, it, very simple and elegant, which it certainly does. Um, I the more I started digging into it, the more the more there was to unpack. So I really impressed. Um, I'm just fangirling now. So, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I like the way that the, the the word inter just kept coming up there because I mean the, the the idea of intersectional was such an important was such an important part of it. Just in in terms of like the political perspective of of the work and and. Um, you know, to like intersectionality, like as as a you know, a movement, a, a, a theoretical movement, and like an activist movement, is just something that's so important to me. And I really wanted to find a way to engage with the text that almost looked at how these, how you know, how this, how this work and its and its history relates to now, and like how how we connect with it now, and you know, the idea of like intersectional feminism, how that relates to a room of one's own, how it's inspired by it, how it reacts to it um and 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 things like that uh i was just i was just wondering if there was a point i mean because you you do have some pretty elaborate uh constraints on that was there a point where it got to be like too much i mean you know you you were saying that you had these epiphanies that got you over some rough patches but was there ever a point when you're like i was crazy for putting that limit on this <laughs> um I, I the most difficult part i just think of is there was there was a summer where I'm trying to think what stage it was at, but it was I was effectively combing through and having to having to reduce the either reduce or uh, expand upon the number of 
I guess I'd call them not very interesting words, although in actual fact their usage is really interesting, but you know, just things like the and for, from, uh, and you know, when, when you've got, when you've got B, I don't know what it was like uh, 180 times, but you've used it 270 times. And it's like, B is a really difficult word to, to remove from a sentence. And it's like, you don't necessarily realize that until you start trying to, until you start trying to do it. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, it was difficult in, in that sense. Um, but I, I mean, sorry, I, got, I was just thinking. I was just, I mean, is that how you stumbled across? It's like, you almost have like, you know, phrase homophones in there, um, where words or phrases that you have sound like something that they're not actually, you've constructed a word out of different words. Uh, which when you speak them out loud, it sounds like you're saying something, but it's actually written quite differently. Is that how you stumbled across that? Well, that, yeah, with, with the dreadlock hoax, that was, I just thought, because I was um, moving it from being something textual, like some visual textual to something, um, yeah, to like a, a, a sound thing. I thought, yeah, this idea of being able to pass words as other words in the act of passing in reference to when Virginia Woolf passed. Um, and also she just uses the word passing so much in the essay that I was working from. So it was just, <laughs> it was just, it was just perfect in that way. Um, because I mean, I mean, that actually, it's because all of it was, I mean, both, both projects were really, really fundamentally based in wordplay, I think. And not just, not just wordplay in the, in the playful sense, but finding a way to, uh, you know, because I mean, word wordplay as a as a radical act is 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 like a really big thing, right? You know, in you know, in feminism, in black rights. Um, so I wanted to to engage with that. Um, and in terms of games, it's one the the center sort of the centerpiece of the novel is Olivia. She ends up going to this. It's like a university drinking society. It's like a secret po- poetic drinking society. Um, and she gets in there and, and she's told that they play a game called uh, Word. So it's We Play Word. Um, and then because it's Cambridge, it's this very sort of pretentious, very overly literary game. But in actual fact, she realises it's just another form of like a of like the dozens, like a rap battle. Um, and she and, and so she moves her way through this and, and it's it's just a back and forth of, of wordplay. And it's in it's I think the way it's set up is they're throwing increasingly uh I suppose traditionalist literary texts of, of you know, phrases, quotes and things at her. And then she's coming back with things that are much more current. You know, she'll 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 make like a reference to like Beyonce, to Harry Potter, you know, I mean so so it's almost like that's her way of 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 um of coming up against that. Um and just something that's that's quite funny in terms of an epiphany that I completely didn't even notice. Uh, sorry, not an epiphany, a, a, a sort of coincidence that I didn't even notice in in working with the text. When when I finished, and I was um I I asked my partner to to read it, and uh, and she pointed out that there's at the very end of the of the very end of that section of of this game where she 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 has to go up against each different each different character in turn and knock them back and then. Finally, she thinks she's finished, but then, but then the worst one, or like the you know the most difficult one, he pops up out of nowhere. And and as I was writing that, I, it did. I, there was a vague sense it reminded me of something. I didn't know exactly what. And then and then Eve pointed out. She said, "You realise you've taken that from Pokemon, right?" <laughs> and it was like, "Oh wow, oh. yeah." I just <laughs> I had no yeah, sense of it. Boss battle. <laughs> yeah. So the bus just pops up right at the end, and he, you know, it's this, it's this announcing himself that you didn't know he was there, you didn't know he was hiding, 
Um, so yeah, I mean, just in terms of in terms of gaming collaboration, I just thought that was I, I really I was just really really pleased that that happened without me realizing. I thought that was great. That's lovely. I I tend I tend to see game structures in in a lot of things. I mean, particularly movies now. I see so many parallels. Um, what was the uh, the movie with Brad Pitt about the zombies? What was it? World War, World War Z. Z. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end when they're sneaking into the lab, I just com- or they're in the lab and they're trying to move around between the zombies. I just completely lost patience with it because for me it was like a bad game level, <laughs> um, and. I, I I found myself questioning like the NPCs as I viewed it. Like they stopped being actors to me and they became pieces in the game. And I, I got very fed up with it. And I, everyone else around me was completely absorbed in the movie. And I'm like, do they not realize that this is just a zombie level in a, in a video game? And um, it, it can, you know, both, you know, ruin your pleasure and I guess sometimes make it better. But I love that you did that in your work and that, you know, that was a subconscious thing that you did. How, how delightful. And a boss of all things, too. <laughs> how formidable. Yeah, oh, that's delightful. Have you seen the film, uh, I forgot what it's called now, uh, the, the Raid? Have you seen The Raid? No, I haven't. I haven't either. It, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's quite an intense, I think there's The Raid and The Raid 2 now. But um, it's like a, it's like a squat team that are trying to take down this, this massive apartment block that's full of, like, uh you know drug dealers and gangsters and stuff and we watched it i mean it's just like you know it's like super violent and and just so much fighting and stuff and like super high octane um but we watched it and then afterwards we were talking it was like actually that wasn't really a film that was a game the way the way it worked and they're like dropping down through the floor and suddenly you're on a different level and stuff so yeah i mean i, I don't know maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's a thing that's that's gonna increasingly happen in films as you know the the importance and popularity of games in, increases well i mean well i mean games do outsell movies now i mean it's a, a bigger industry yeah so i and there's obviously there's a lot of uh feedback between the two you know you have movies being you know made into games and games being made into movies and so there's just it, they bled together in a way you know, and you do have games now that, as you pointed out, are essentially interactive movies. You know, you press X to advance the 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 plot, essentially. And you have click time events where you don't have to do more than press a button a few times. Um, which I, you know, have you played Heavy Rain, either of you? No, it's on my list, but I haven't yet. No. Um, I that always gets a, a mixed response from people who've played it. Some people love it, some people hate it. Um, but it's it's like a, a movie. It's very you know press X to to make a choice in the game. But your choices really do have consequences in that game. So it's a choose your own adventure story. But it's a very cinematic one. So I, I strongly recommend it just to see what an interactive movie would look like if you could actually choose the plot of the movie as you went along well and i think uh you know brianna Wu's um game from giant space cat uh, revolution 60 is very much a choose your own adventure too there are definite action elements in it but how well you perform actions and the choices you make throughout the story determine the ending of the game and she said we'll carry on to the sequel so when you buy the sequel and load it up on your um on your device your the consequences of the previous game are going to be embedded in the new version of it and i just think that's absolutely fascinating that i mean permanent consequences like that that's really in 
unusual way to to start a game. So if people want to have a different second game experience, they have to go back and replay the first game to get a different set of data to start the... Wow. I mean, that's... I mean, I might be misrepresenting... My understanding might be flawed, but that's that's my current understanding of it anyway. No, it's it's fascinating. I It's just that's... That's a, a real sort of permanent game choice that uh, I, I think typically people tend to shy away from just because, you know, replayability is a sort of a touchy issue sometimes. Do people really have time to, to replay entire games, you know? Right. I think it, in this case, it helps that it's a fairly short, you know, like two to four hour game. But Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's what I was, I was going to say. I mean, some games like, again, like Journey, replaying Journey, it's a completely different game experience. Like you know, massive spoiler that everyone already knows. Once you get the white robes, um, eight, I finally got my white robes. I'm so excited. Oh, play. Have you played through with the white robes yet? I haven't. I got it. Oh and my then, God. Yeah. Is it's, it way different? It's a completely different experience. Wow. If you're a white robe and you're guiding a red robe through the way you treat the game is completely different because you're there to teach. You're not there trying to figure it all out yourself. Right. So I found that I was playing very differently as a white robe. Um, and it was a different game experience for me. Was, I mean, there was genuine replayability to it. It's very exciting. It wasn't just dinging a trophy by, you know, I'm going to clean all of these trophies up. If you're playing Journey for the trophies, you're doing it wrong, people. Oh, just, absolutely. Just want to throw that out there. Absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, so getting back to, like, games and literature and movies, like all of them sort of tying together, I... I had mentioned to, to Kabe that I thought of doing a, a game version of A Room of One's Own. Um, and you are much more intimate with that, that work than I am at this point in time. And I was just wondering, what would that look like to you if, if there was a game version of that? But when you told me that, I started actually thinking over, over the book again. <laughs> and just like, uh-huh. you can really, really start to, like what you were saying about watching the film, you can really start to see about, because like, the incredible narrative that she actually, that she actually sets up it it is so it even though even though it's not it's not a novel it is so plot driven and you know the chapters work as levels and you can actually you know you've got a, you've got a really specific setting to almost every every chapter so you have these really amazing locations um you know like she's at she's at the old british library which is like the, you know this really really beautiful library right in the sense it was in the british museum um now i've not been in there recently i'm not sure what, what it currently looks like but so if it was if you know if it's like wolf as the protagonist that would that would that would look amazing and then you have you could have like an this like an overriding story arc that she's actually giving this lecture and you can see her or the other you know the two lectures so yeah i just it's it's such a it's a really exciting idea actually and it's something i hadn't thought of and it made me start to think actually looking back at other works of literature as as games because there's always these uh I can't remember what they're called, uh, eight bit, but you know, you get them online and there's, you know, people have made like, I don't know, like Ulysses as, as a game. And it's sort of, yeah, you see him jogging along and doing all this, all this stuff, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's gimmicky and it's fun. It's, it's like meme, <laughs> meme material rather than, uh, something much more engaged with the work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it just sounds, I mean, what, what was it that you sort of, when you had the idea, what was it you pictured? Um, I, in my mind, it's this mashup between A Room of One's Own and the Mist games, um, because I see all these parallels between them. Like in Mist, I mean, I'll talk, I'll focus on the first game. 
but you sort of get coughed up onto this island um, where these men, a father and his two sons, because the wife has been exiled, you later find out, to, to another place, are playing all these very intellectual games with each other in this sort of classical setting, you know, with Grecian columns and stuff everywhere. And all the puzzles are, are very sort of highbrow. They're musical, they're mathematical, you know, they're um, mechanical and electrical. And it, it, what a it's very academic. I mean, I was just struck by, you know, this is academia to a certain extent, you know, and to enter into that world as Virginia Woolf and sort of exploring some of the themes that she deals with in everyone's own, how much fun could you have sort of playing those two things off of each other? So um, that that's where I started from. I was trying to write it as a, as a short story, but I I was having trouble with the protagonist because I'm like, do we know that it's Virginia Woolf from the start? Is it, you know, how much, am I, if I'm telling it from the player's point of view, which would be Virginia Woolf, am I telling it in her voice? And there were just too many problems with that. It just, it didn't want to be written. And so I started thinking about it in terms of, of it being a game where we're not really sure who the protagonist is. I mean, it's in the first person um, in the Mist games, so a, sort of a cloaked Virginia Woolf could be a lot of fun. Um, a, again, the, the whole idea of, of passing, of, of the Avatar just being this guise that almost anyone can slip into to get in entry into that academic world that women have been exiled from and the people of color have been exiled from. So it, that's, that's where I started my thoughts about it. It's so interesting in terms of A Room One's Own, just because the, the, the number of the number of women she cr- creates to to stand in for for her, you know, the, the lines when you know I, whether I whether I'm Mary Carmichael or Mary Seaton, Mary Beaton, and all this. So it's yeah, I mean, it, I just love the idea that especially all those there's these it's amazing moments when she she opens up her thought process to say, you know, I reached I reached for this book and this made me think this and this, you know, seeing the moment I seeing the two people getting into the taxi. And the idea of actually being able to visualize it, like you were saying, like, you know, you go into a library, you pull down a particular book and that sends, that sends the plot in a different direction. And yeah, I mean, I really want to play it now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I'll have to, I, I would love to make that game. I mean, just, just for the sheer joy of, of making it, I think, and, and playing in that space, um, because those are two things I absolutely love. I mean, I'm clearly a Wolf fan and the Mist games are, you know, what made me, kind of want to be a writer. I mean, what made me realize that video games could be more than just pixels on the screen. Like I made the connection with literature when I played those games. Um, so yeah, I, you know, if I ever do decide to make it, I know who my consultant will be. <laughs> you expect the phone call. And if not, I can, I can dust off my old Explorer cartridge and hack it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I'll have you program the game for me. It'll be a pure collaboration. That would be, that would be delightful. Um, we should talk. Yeah. Um, that's wonderful. Well, I, I kind of have to go. I was going to say we're a little over an hour, but it's been so interesting listening to both of you. This has been so much fun. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, this has been delightful. I apologize that my my mind has been wandering. I'm a little over caffeinated. That makes my my thoughts race a little bit. So I I do apologize for that. Um, but this was wonderful, Kabe. I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much for talk. having me. And 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 yeah, just it's been really really interesting and to, to listen to you both. And yeah, just great. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I mean, I have no doubt that, that we will be in touch. Um, I will certainly be in touch with you in the future, and, and we'll be keeping up with your work. I'm excited you're working on an Othello project now. I am. I'm also, at the moment, I'm just starting a... Um... I'm I'm starting a project. Just it's quite interesting in relation to what you've been talking about about uh, abuse aimed within uh, soccer matches in in the UK, which is a big thing like homophobic, racist, sexist abuse actually, and uh, like a a way of sort of presenting that and and you know shining a light on it and bringing attention to it. Um, so that's 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 what I'm going on for now, which should be should be scary and <laughs> exciting i suppose yeah you're gonna encounter some some rabid fans yeah. that's for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> best of luck to you <laughs> thank you <laughs> i hope you won't need it yeah um well i will definitely i'm intrigued to see what you do with that and i will be following that avidly so um yeah and aline anything else well anna how can people find you uh, same old, same old. Um, I'm at Sunixi on, on Twitter, or they can go to my website, AnnaMcGill.com. And Kabe, how can people learn more about you and find what you're doing? Yeah, um, if you go to uh, dreadlockhoax.co.uk, uh, then uh, my work's on there. And, uh, and yeah, there's an email address if anyone wants to get in contact. Wonderful. I am so glad this happened it's been it, it's just been wonderful it really has i agree i had a I lovely agree. time really really nice you can find the show on twitter at less than or equal if you have feedback suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form if you have a few minutes it would be great if you would leave a review on itunes thanks for listening until next time on an internet near you i'm aline sims for less than or equal